Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How does a woman last 30 years in the rough and tumble of politics when everything from your transgender husband to your daughter's drug charge become open media fodder? Today, we meet a New Zealand leader, a dame no less, who's been through it all and lives to tell the tale. Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again. Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about power, women and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger. This is episode two of our series looking at new leadership, a style of feminised leadership that we've seen emerge during the coronavirus crisis and one that stands in stark contrast to the struggles of the world's strongman leaders. Thanks so much to everyone who got in contact after last week's debut. I'm really glad that you did and that you enjoyed it, and thanks for your feedback. And don't forget, if you want to contact us on Broad Talk, the best way to do that is pull up a chair, a virtual chair, at our Broad Talk Roundtable on our Facebook page. You can find us there at Broad Talk, all one word. And while you're at it, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss out any future episodes. We've got some terrific conversations coming up. Maybe you'd even like to write us a review. Doing that helps us a great deal to get the word out about this series. Today, we're taking a virtual trip across the ditch to talk leadership among our Kiwi neighbours. Dame Annette King is New Zealand's High Commissioner to Australia. She's also our near neighbour's longest serving female politician. Beloved by her constituents and respected by her opponents, Annette never set out to smash glass ceilings or stereotypes, but she did, time and time again. As Deputy Leader of the New Zealand Labour Party, she was famed for never once raising her voice, yet possessing a powerful cold stare, rivalled only by Helen Clark. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern calls Annette a key mentor and role model in both politics and in life. She says that she's super tough. When we meet Dame Annette, she's warm, endearing and pretty intriguing. Annette, welcome to Broad Talk. It's so lovely to be sitting down with you here at the at the residence. Thank you for coming to the residence. We haven't had many visitors in the last few weeks. Oh, I bet it's been very quiet. But you do have a brand new dog. We do. Freddie the dog. <laughs> he has been our distraction during the lockdown and um, we've fallen in love with him. Oh, he's, he's five months old. He's absolutely gorgeous. And I, I can attest to that he is gorgeous. He's also extremely energetic. <laughs> Which actually brings me straight to you. Um, you are a, a, an extraordinarily 
energetic person. I know those who wrote your biography said you had an incredible capacity for work. You also have a great, uh, great longevity in what is a very tough career, particularly for women, and that's politics. Um, decades as New Zealand's longest serving female member of parliament. What do you put that longevity down to? Um, today is the day. 36 years ago, I was first elected to Parliament, Bastille Day um, in 1984. And I have to say, it was never my life's ambition to be a, a member of Parliament and a politician. I never thought that I would last 30 years in politics. Um, but um, my life tumbled along and I ended up being re-elected and re-elected and ended up in positions of, of leadership um, when I look back, I thought, I haven't really planned any of this. It happened to me. Well, that's interesting. How much is plan conscious and, and how much is subconscious? And we'll, we'll come to that. But let's just backtrack a little bit. If you hadn't planned it as such, what were you supposed to be? I mean, you, your father was a, a coal miner and he, I understand he entered the mines when he was a, a kid, really, at 13, and your mother worked in the post office. And then my father bar. worked for 40 years in the post office when he left the mine. So, no, I, I trained as a school dental nurse and that's what I wanted to be. Um, that was my dream for many, many years. But I joined the Labour Party um, after Norman Kirk won the election of 1972 in New Zealand. And my family were a Labour family. And I became involved in the Labour Party. I then started a degree in political science and became more involved in the Labour Party. But I never saw myself in um, a role as a member of parliament, but but organising and, and being part of a team of, of running an election and so on. So it was not my ambition. And I never started off with the idea that I could be a member of parliament. Others did that job. Are you glad to be out of it? I am now. Um, I loved I loved it. It was a fantastic job. It was it doesn't compare to anything being in politics. But and you don't you don't miss it? I don't miss it. When I walked out that door, I walked out um, under my own um, steam. Um, I decided that I'd, I would give up. I'd been there a long time. And I was handing over to um, up-and-coming, fantastic young woman who has been shown to have gone on to be a really great leader in New Zealand. And so, so I was happy to leave. How old was I? I was about 69 when I left. So I'd been there a long time. Jacinda Ardern, your mentee, that, that fantastic young woman that you mentioned there, uh, is very, very complimentary about you, of course. But one of the things that struck me when she was speaking about you to your biographers, she spoke about you being very tough. And in fact, she said, you know, you, you wouldn't want to cross her. She's, she's very tough. And yet others talk about you not being soft, but being, um, a very caring, very human, uh, which Jacinda does as well, but tough. Are you tough? I think there is a time for toughness. And I was the deputy leader for quite a number of years. And I had tough portfolios as a minister. And if you're a minister, you've got to know what you want to do. You've got to know what, what others need to do for you. And so, um, I suppose I show an edge of toughness in, in those areas. Um, but as deputy leader, I had to, I had to discipline the caucus. That was my job. And I tried to do it as, as my parents disciplined us in a, in a fair way. But you had to, people had to know that when you wanted something done, it needed to be done because a caucus is a team. And in politics, you've, it falls apart if you have people of that team that, uh, that are not uh, playing the game. How did you do that, though, Annette, when you, you, you say you, you, know, you had to be tough and make it clear that people understood what you wanted? Uh, would, you, would, would you ever lose your patience? Would you raise your voice? No, and I, I never yelled at anybody and I didn't raise my voice, but I was very definite. And I have been told that I've got, when I'm uh, telling people something, I've got a cold stare. So, um, a cold stare. So, but they, and, and sometimes I'd say, and skinny lips. So, um, <laughs> so I, I think that what I, what I did was to tell people in a very assertive way what I thought. And I tried to always be upfront and honest with them. If, if something had gone wrong and somebody had, 
had leaked something out of the caucus or had done something that they shouldn't have, I would talk to them frankly and say, this is just not acceptable and um, I don't expect it to happen again. Um, And so it wasn't a matter of being um, a bully or yelling at people or slamming doors. I don't believe in that. I didn't believe that as a parent. And I certainly have not ever been that sort of person in any job I've had. It's interesting when you talk about the cold stare. Uh, Our former Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, has written in a book that was recently uh, released on women and leadership, and she talks about the the resting bitch face. And (laughs) (laughs) look, it's a horrible term, and I I even hate saying it, but it's become a bit of a thing. And it was discussed a lot in Australia at times when Gillard was uh, Prime Minister, but also Julia Bishop was uh, Foreign Minister later on, that she had this very powerful stare and also the uh, the, the resting bitch face. Is that what you mean when you talk about the cold stare? I've never called it that, but uh, there's one person who was much better at it than me, and that was Helen Clark. And <laughs> you knew when you got Helen's cold stare, things it weren't was scary. good. Um, but but I think it's, it's part. It, I think your face does reflect. Well, my face, I think, reflects what I'm feeling, and and it must have been what people picked up. So so tough, yes, when when I needed to be. But I think also I could also be compassionate and caring and. I think that comes from the sort of background I come from, from my own upbringing. One of those uh, other mentees of yours, Darren Hughes actually, has said about you that your style of politics is is – there's nothing cynical about it, and he actually has postured that possibly it's it's a style that's disappearing, and he says that you – you communicate so well and the position you take on things is never cynical. It's always very – trustworthy and you're always considered to be very just and fair and then as I say postures that perhaps that's that's disappearing which is sad in itself does it surprise you to hear him say that well there were a lot of complimentary things written in the book about me which I I never asked to have written it's not written by me it was um, written by two journalists actually and and I was surprised when I read some of the comments in it um, about myself I suppose I do have a strong sense of justice and fairness, and if anything does offend me, it is when I see injustice and unfairness, and I'm likely to likely to raise it and and to rail against it. But um, I, I think there were some very generous things said in that book. You also faced a, a lot of challenges during your time as a as a politician, as, as both deputy leader, as a minister, and in opposition as well. But some. Some really tough personal challenges, uh, particularly around the time uh, early on when you left your husband. Was there a time when you ever felt you wanted to get out of public life because it was it was too glaring, the spotlight? I, I separated from my husband, who is a transgender person, and, and that's well documented. Um, well, who you'd had a, a daughter with. Yes, but I left long before I went into politics. Um, I was divorced by the time I went into politics. But I think the toughest time I had in politics was around family and friends. See, I don't believe that family should be brought into the political limelight. They don't ask for their parents or their husband or their wife to be be politicians. And often when they marry them, they, they are not politicians or the children's parents weren't politicians. But there's been a tendency in New Zealand, and I notice in other countries, to to also use the family members as a weapon against politicians. And I really object to that. There is no place for that in my view. So, you know, when when people criticise the Prime Minister's wife and their children, I, I just think that's totally unacceptable. Did that happen to you? Yes, it did. And it's happened. I have one daughter and she got into some trouble when she crashed my car. And in, in the car was found to be um, one one ecstasy tablet in her boyfriend's um, sponge bag. She was charged um, with possession and only on appeal to the High Court was she found not guilty. And, and I so resented the way it was handled because the headlines was because of me. 
because every day of the week in New Zealand, young people do silly things. In her case, uh, crashing the car was silly. But particularly hard too, because you'd been police minister? I'd been a police minister, and one of the headlines was the fact that, um, uh, well, at that stage I wasn't the health uh, um, police minister. That was another story later on. I was the health minister at that stage. And that really hurt um, the way it was handled by the opposition, by the media, because to me, it's a no-go area to bring ch- and politicians' children into the limelight. It's a, it's an interesting one, though, Annette, isn't it? Because uh, family, whilst you know the obvious need to protect them is a very reasonable one, family really isn't a no-go area when it comes to elections and politicians do use photos of their families and their families are up on stage with them. And That's a choice me, people we- make. That's and, and my advice to when I was a deputy leader and in, a, in a, a role of mentoring politicians was to say, don't bring your children into your your publicity. Don't use your children because there's every right then for it to be played back to you. And so that was the best advice I could give. If you don't want your children to be in the media, don't put them in there yourself. So coming back to your daughter, when that happened and that that story was first exposed, how how did that feel for you? Terrible. It was it was shocking because she went to court and as a minister, I couldn't go with her. Fortunately, my former husband went with her. It led the it led the television news. It was it. I felt powerless actually to be able to help her. Was your daughter angry with you? No, not in the least. And 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 she never has been. She's a wonderful. Wonderful young woman, actually, but but I felt bad, and it goes right back to to the fact that when I went into Parliament, she was fourteen years old, and there were so many times that I couldn't be with her because politics take over your life. And at what stage, though, would you have perhaps thought, "Look, this is too much on my daughter; it's too much focus on the family, and perhaps I should get out." Did did that occur to you? Yes, very early on. I'd just been elected in July. Bastille Day, 1984, school holidays came and I was then divorced living in Wellington and my former husband lived in Hamilton and our daughter went up to stay with him for the school holidays and phoned me and said, I'm not coming back, I'm going to live with Dad. And at that point... Was he transgender at that stage? No, well he was but it wasn't public. It wasn't public. And, And I thought, I can't do this job, I can't live without having my daughter living with me. And I was, I, I had some very good, good friends, my two sisters, two very close woman friends who said, just, just wait, just hang in there. It won't always be like this. Was that your daughter's way of saying your life is too busy? You haven't got enough time for me. So I'm going to go and live with dad. No, I think she thought that life would be easier for her living with her dad than living with mum. I, well, I'm not really sure, but, but, um, you know, it was different and interesting. And she still had friends from Hamilton because we'd left Hamilton. So, but, um, after three months of, or four months of living there came Christmas. She came home for Christmas and said, I'm not going back. And she never did. So she lived with me until she was 30. So (laughs) (laughs) that's quite an innings too. Was it difficult when your husband announced to you that he was transgender? Very difficult because. Was it a surprise? Uh, yes, it was a big surprise, and I didn't really understand what transgender was. I mean, we're, we're talking uh, about 1978, and so who knew much about transgender people? And when he told me he was transgender and always had believed that he was a woman, I said, well, let, let's go to the doctor and we'll get it fixed. So <laughs> get that's, it fixed. That's, yes, get wow. it fixed. We'll, we'll find some cure for this. Um but of course, there isn't it. Um, what was his response to that? Well, he really tried hard, and he'd tried hard all his life not to be. But when it came down to it, I wanted to be with a man, not a woman. And and uh, he wanted to be a woman, and so we we parted, and we're to this day are still close. How did you explain that to your daughter, the two of you? We didn't explain it for a long time, and we didn't need to, because um, Petra didn't come out as a woman until many years later publicly and then we described then we um, explained it to our daughter and she took it extremely well so did my parents which is one of the 
funny stories of, of, of this whole thing. Well, they were quite elderly. and But they were but in their 80s at this yeah, stage. Perhaps not, uh, I don't know if, conser- well, conservative is not the right word, but, but traditional, I suppose. But they were never judgmental of, no matter who I brought home as a boyfriend, or they, they were never judgmental about people. They So when I um, decided that I needed to tell them that Doug was now going to become Petra, I took them for a, a ride on the car on a Sunday and um, and said to them, you know, this is what's going to happen. And there was a sort of a brief silence and, and Dad said, makes no difference to me. Mm. And my mother said, always welcome at our house. That, that was wonderful? all was ever said. Mm. And, 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 uh, and never discussed again. No, and, and, and it just accepted. And, uh, in fact, Petra came that Christmas as as he had done, now she. And, of course, my husband, Ray, has been just amazing. He's, he's accepted that that Petra is Amanda's parent, uh, p- part of our lives, um, and so I've been extremely fortunate. Did you at any stage wonder whether that transition, though, from Doug to Petra and the publicity around that was going to um, impact negatively on your career? Um, it didn't really come out as an issue in the media until the uh, 2014 election it was, or was it the twenty? Yeah, the 2014 election, because it wasn't my place to to make comment about it. It's Petra's life, and uh, but Petra had become very involved in the transgender sector in New Zealand, and it was very open about it and worked um, as a woman. Did you get any pushback about it, though? No. I got, I, in fact, quite the opposite. Um, and that had been the change over all those years in New Zealand on so many issues, including homosexual law reform, for example. One of the, my proudest moments in Parliament was to be part of the uh, Labor government that that voted uh, for the homosexual law reform in 1985, when it wasn't it wasn't popular, and when I was told I would lose my seat in Parliament if I did vote for it, and yet you and still did. And your your friend, another parliamentarian, um, Fran Wild, was very very instrumental in. Getting that that reform through. It was her bill, and she she really stuck her neck out too, didn't she? And here she was a single mother of three kids, mm-hmm. and also told that she would lose her position if she. She is one insisted. of the bravest politicians I've ever met because she went through hell um, with the most appalling things written to her and feces in her letterbox and threats to her life, and she just stuck with it. And there was a small group of us that were that were with her, but she, it was her. It was her bill, and she was determined to make it happen, and she did. Um, and, and uh, you know, to to this day, that's still one of my proudest moments, and, and I've always looked very favourably and fondly on Fran, and we're still friends to this day. How do you see that through, though, when it becomes so personal and so ugly and your friends are being so, you know, so badly attacked, and, and you are too, what makes you push on rather than say, look, enough's enough, this, this, is, this is a game I don't want to play? I think it was the, the strong belief that it was wrong to criminalise a male homosexual. It was wrong. It was everything about it was wrong. This could have been your son or your nephew or some some family member. They weren't a criminal because they were gay, and and the strong belief that we could not continue to have uh, young men locked up, uh, police breaking into their homes to arrest them, to see the injustice of of that happening. Of course, in New Zealand, women were not criminalised. Uh, lesbians in New Zealand were, were not harassed. Um, it was it was mean and it was wrong. If we just jump forward in time, um, Australia grappled with same-sex marriage as an idea for a long, long time and there were times when we had a Labor government in power and there was an expectation, I think, in, certainly in the um, homosexual community that the government would move on same-sex marriage, and it didn't. Um, and particularly when we had someone like Penny Wong in a position of power and in cabinet, but she chose not to push this because it was such a contentious issue within her own party, as well as the electorate. I, I, I mean, I'm sure you understand that, but do you support that kind of reticence? I understand it, and I think 
because we'd been through the the debate on homosexual law reform, we had had we had um, legalised prostitution. We had the first step was civil union. So we would we went from civil union to gay marriage. So there'd been progression along the way, and I think within the parliament. People had had accepted that you needed to be changed, and the argument was put up for change. There was very strong support from it from the New Zealand community, and so it wasn't um, it wasn't where we went straight in with with gay marriage. It was it had been a progression of changes and and social changes that people, uh, the majority of people accepted, and certainly the majority in Parliament did. But do you think there's a time though when you, as a politician, as a, as a lawmaker, you just have to put a line in sand and say, you know what, I'm going to go for this. I, I, I don't, I, I respect that my colleagues don't agree with it, but I'm going to go with it. Absolutely. And it's nearly always on moral issues in the New Zealand Parliament because otherwise you're part of a caucus and part of a team. And if you don't agree with the policy, you probably don't want to be in that party and you probably leave or you would ask to cross the floor and that really happens. But on moral issues in New Zealand, you had to you had to know what you believed in and you had to stand up for it. So um, one of the issues in t- is, is on abortion. And, um, you know, I, my advice to young members of parliament was one that was given to me, just be honest. If you believe in, in abortion reform, Say you do. Don't try to hedge it. Don't try to pretend you're on both sides of the fence on an issue like that. You'll get caught out anyway. But but also, it doesn't mean that you're going to lose an election on one issue like that. Mm. So so I've, I always tried to be upfront. I believed in abortion reform. I wanted abortion reform. I wanted homosexual law reform, but they were always on those moral issues that you'd get the division within within a caucus and within a parliament. And that you're right, that's when you had to stand up for what you believed in. And Annette, you were well, obviously, in such a with such a long um, a political career, there were going to be times when you criticised, but you were criticised occasionally for some very unfair things. But at one stage, there was a suggestion that you were a lesbian and that you were <laughs> you were secretly hiding that. Now, how did you how did you cope with that? Well, it's funny you I say mean, not that. that there's be- anything wrong with it, but it, the suggestion was that you were trying to be secretive. Well, the only time that was ever suggested was by Sir Robert Muldoon, the former Prime Minister of New Zealand, had lost the election. And one evening I was sitting in Parliament next to Fran Wilde. And he came in and unfortunately it was not unusual for him to come into the Parliament later at night after uh, the odd drink or two. So he was drunk. Well, uh, he'd, he'd certainly had a drink or two. <laughs> um, and, and then to, to um, suggest that Fran Wilde and I were having a relationship, which then um, then sort of shot around the the gossip the gossipers um, and went nowhere because it was so demonstrably untrue. But he got away with saying it. And if we again just shoot forward back to Australia, not that long ago, one of our own senators um, for the Greens, Sarah Hanson Young, was in Parliament when uh, another senator called out across the chamber to her that she needed to stop shagging men and uh, started suggesting he knew who she was sleeping with. And again, it was that dirty kind of grubby stuff. And that still happens. It that still, still happens. happens in our parliaments, and, and it women, has happened and in ours. Yeah, and it, it has happened in ours, and it happened. It happened to Jacinda Ardern, uh, where we're a, a minister, because Jacinda was our spokesperson for children and didn't have children, uh, and another woman. This was uh, suggested that she. What would she know about children? She's never had any. So, so it's not just. It's not just men that you, make these uh, suggestions. You've been a great mentor to Jacinda. What did you tell her at that time? How, how should she best respond to that? Well, it's hard to tell somebody what they should feel because she felt really hurt by it. And she has, you know, she had a real commitment to the portfolio and worked really hard in it. You know, so it's platitudes, really. You say, look, take no notice of it. You just ignore it. Um, and, and. Or fight back? Um, it's not her style to have done that. And anyway, she didn't want to fight 
with the same the same weapons that have been used against her, mm. and it's so so she did it in her own way. But everybody was saying, just ignore it. It's you know, it's interesting, isn't it? it this is such a female thing, but of course, again, a, across the waters, if we look at Australia, our um, uh, Prime Minister Julia Gillard, when she was in office, was of course accused of being you know deliberately barren, not having children, etc. By Senator Heffernan, it was a bizarre statement. But there was a suggestion at one stage too. By a Labor colleague, that she couldn't understand love because she didn't have children, which was incredibly cutting and, and painful. But these are the sorts of criticism that women cop more than men, don't they? Yes, and that's been you know that's been my experience. I mean, if you were to interview Helen Clark, she would be able to tell you story after story of those sorts of insults that were thrown at her because she didn't have children. But she is one of the most caring people and looked at her old dad, who's now 98, going on 99, talks to every day. She's looked after her sisters and her nieces. Um, so she mightn't have had children, but she had, she had family that she cares for and, and loves. But she had to put up with that sort of insult uh, on a regular basis. And you're right, usually from men, but not always, sometimes from women. And that always disappointed me. Which is something I want to talk further about, how much women do or don't support each other. But we're going to come to that right now, though. We're just going to take a short break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Broad Talk with Virginia Hasker, and I'm speaking with Dame Annette King, a long-serving politician in New Zealand and now the New Zealand High Commissioner here in Australia. And it's such a delight to be sitting down with her and the residents at this time during during our COVID lockdown again. But Annette, we were just discussing whether or not women support one another or whether in in fact it's sometimes women in positions of power and leadership that can be toughest on other women. Has that been your experience? For me, I was exceptionally lucky to have a number of women who helped me from the very beginning of my political career. Um, and they included Helen Clark and Fran Wilde and Herkes and others who were mentors to me, but also showed me the way in in many ways. And so most of my political career, I had women around me, including my sisters and friends and, and, uh, and relatives, if you like, that supported me. I didn't really experience a lot of criticism from other women, but I have seen it, and I've seen it um, a, a, in more recent times, actually, in the last few years of our parliament, I saw some some pretty nasty things thrown at the younger members of Parliament and younger women within our Parliament, and you know I've seen I've seen how it's it's broken some of them. And there's a very high profile story just a couple of weeks ago of one of our women leaving the New Zealand Parliament, who was was really virtually broken by the, being targeted and attacked relentlessly uh, in the Parliament. What do you think is going on there, though, when, as women, particularly in, in politics, it's so hard to get a foothold? 
How could it be then that, that women, when they start to rise through the ranks, can in fact turn on other women and make it hard for them and not support them? I mean, we all know, as uh, Madeleine Albright says, there's a, a special place in hell reserved for women who don't support other women. But there is also a very strong perception around now that women can be the toughest critics and the worst enemies of other women who are aspiring to leadership. I don't I can't explain it. It's not something that I would do. But do you, um, do you see some truth to it? Oh though? no, I definitely see some truth to it. And it, and it actually for a long time women found it hard one to get selected to a, um, a seat for parliament and two to get elected because women didn't necessarily vote for women. It was it and I'm sure there's still some that think this is a job for men, not for women. And as you, we've talked about just a while ago, look around the world where there's been such success from women leaders. And I don't really understand why women wouldn't support women. It's not mindless. It's if they, if they aren't capable and competent, of course you wouldn't support them. But, but, but you also it... don't say they are not competent and capable. Um, and, and that's, I find that really hard when we're told that, the, you know, women couldn't really do that. You must have heard that many times. Indeed. But is there an obligation specifically on women who have managed to cut through and, and achieve certain levels of leadership or power or authority? Is there an obligation on them to be particularly caring and careful uh, towards other women and, and provide a ladder for them? I certainly believe that. And, and also, within, within the, um, Labour Party when I was, when I was still in Parliament, we decided that we wanted 50% of our caucus to be women. And our, our women's council, um, we, we put this up as a policy. You just wouldn't believe the backlash there was in the media and, and amongst many in the, in the population saying, this is a man ban. We're <laughs> banning men from positions and saying that women should have them. What we were saying is that, you know, the House of Representatives should be represented by the population and, and f- over 50% of the parliament, of our population are women and there are capable and competent women who should be in parliament. Um, and, and this was quite a campaign against wanting to have 50% of our parliament being women. Fortunately, that is fading away because, um, women have been uh, elected into parliament close to f- over 40% now and, the world hasn't ended. <laughs> we we certainly don't have this in Australia, though. In our federal parliament, we're still sitting around the you know the thirty two. It seems to be thirty two percent. It seems to be we have some sort of you know cap on that, uh, and we can't move beyond it. The Senate, of course, is much better, but Parliament overall is around thirty two percent of women, and and around the world, as we know, it's even worse. How? important do you think quotas are and and how do you respond to the argument that well the very sort of arguments that you had in New Zealand but the argument that uh that it's unfair to men well I think there are times when you need quotas and it's quotas based on competency and ability because um, there are many women and there were many women who were just as good or better than men that were selected for seats But it didn't work like that. So I believe there is a time and place for a quota that brings up, brings up the, uh, the level that you wanted. And then probably there's no need for it. It continues on. And it's going to happen, I think, in the parliament in New Zealand at the next election, that there will be 50% women. And it's by taking some affirmative action. See, people don't mind the name affirmative action. They don't like the word quota, hmm. um, but but I do think there is a place for it, um, and and it's it has to be based on ability and competence, as I said. But but there are women who can do it. Don't cut them out just because they're women. In New Zealand, uh, it was reported in 2019 that uh, an internal survey was done among women MPs, and a third of them responded to this survey. It was on sexism, bullying, and harassment, and I was really startled to read the response, uh, the the result of that survey with a very high proportion of New Zealand MPs reporting that they had been harassed and and bullied and belittled uh, and some of them sexually harassed as well. Did that surprise you? It did surprise me and perhaps it's been something that's been hidden for a long time and women didn't talk about it or didn't know who to talk about it to. It, It was 
it was a big surprise to me. And certainly our, our speaker in the parliament now has been taking action um, to make sure that this doesn't happen to not only to women members of parliament, but to any woman working in parliament, but also to younger people and, and people that come from different backgrounds. There should not be belittling and, and bullying. One of the problems I often, I've often thought about members of parliament is they come from a broad range of backgrounds, you know, some from business, some have been teachers, some have been uh, tradespeople, whatever. One of the things they sometimes don't have is how to be a manager of people. Mm. And suddenly they're in a position of power. Uh, even as a backbencher, you have a power that, that most people don't have. You have access to all sorts of information and, and places and people. But they don't have the training and the background that's needed Mm. To manage people, so and, that power can go to their head a little. Yeah, and and I think I think it does sometimes go to some people's head. What do you think is the biggest danger ahead for Jacinda Ardern, your 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 mentee, and someone who has not only watched you for years and worked with you, but has, has sought your counsel uh, continuously? What and, and now she's riding very high as perhaps one of the most popular leaders ever and certainly globally considered to be an outstanding leader. What, what What's the biggest danger that she faces? That she gives too much of herself to the job, that she's she's a, has a partner and a daughter, she's a family member and she loves them all dearly, that in the end that the, jo- the job doesn't become bigger than everything else and it is a very hard job to ever leave and and I hope and I think that she's got a, her head screwed on pretty well that she knows when the time is to leave. It's it's an extraordinary thought actually because she's doing so well that she's actually got uh, many of us talking about a whole new way of doing leadership, a feminised style of leadership. So the thought of her leaving <laughs> or stepping back is 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 quite. Uh, I'm not horrifying. suggesting she's thinking no, that at all. But but um, it, when I look at the lives of politicians, most politicians don't necessarily leave because they want to. Mm. They leave because they're defeated or someone stood against them or whatever. And so they don't always leave feeling like they have finished their work. Um, And if you look at John Key, our last Prime Minister, he worked out what he wanted to do, when he wanted to leave, and he walked out feeling he'd accomplished what he wanted to. So are you suggesting that that's the sort of thing that uh, Jacinda Ardern might do herself when she decides that uh, the time is right, she could just surprise us all by saying, I'm off now? I'm not suggesting that at all, <laughs> and I have never heard that from her. But you ask me what 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 advice, what would I, I – that, that's what I'd say. Find She finds her time to say, I've done enough. And now I'm going to, I'm now going to leave. One thing and, she, and go and leave, leave on her own terms. As, as you did too. But she, she talks a lot about you, obviously in very glowing terms. But one of the things that I found fascinating was her fascination with how well balanced you are, or, and you certainly were during your time as a politician, that you could, you could push really hard on, on the parliament floor and then she'd look over at you and you will have pulled out your iPad and you might be playing a game. <laughs> While your opponent's still going hell for leather. Um, and she says, you know, she's that Annette King is just so balanced. She's so focused on family when she needs to be. She's, it's almost like, you know, you, you don't let it get to you. Is, is that true? Um, partially. Of course, some things get to you and you can feel very angry and frustrated in, in parliament. And, and often I did, but. I suppose I'm lucky that I do get over things very quickly and I'm not going to let them bother me and, and, and make me feel bad for long. And that doesn't matter whether it's politics or any other part of my life. I, I'm a glass half full person. So, so I might have been angry and upset about something, but then I'll look for what, what's next? What, what can I do next? What can I say next? Do you think that uh, Jacinda has actually helped pave the way, not only for other women, but for a new style of leadership that is utterly 
uh, her own, as in expressive. It's she's got extraordinary powers of communication. Shows a great deal of compassion, empathy, the sorts of things that politicians once would shun because they feared it would make them appear weak uh, or vulnerable. And in fact, she's embraced all of that. Has she shown us a new way? I think she has, but it's not just her. I think it is a generation shift of young politicians. I'm talking about the New Zealand Parliament. I couldn't comment about Australia. But you look at the Parliament now. The baby boomers like me have gone. There's a couple left. And what's been, they've been replaced by the 30 and 40 year olds who have got a different style. And I don't know whether it comes from the way we reared these children. Um, they've got a, a, they've got a more compassionate feel about them. They are, are very engaged um, with people their own age, and they bring their views to the decision making. And and I saw it as a whole generation shift in, in leadership style, led by um, a feeling of of kindness and compassion, and wanting to do you know the best for the generations ahead. And so that intergenerational conflict that's been there, they are looking at it in a different way. They are looking at it: how can we make it better for those generations that are to follow us? Where I think at the baby boomer generation, we had so much. And when I look now at the opportunities we had, you know, we had free education, we we had opportunities for jobs, we got the opportunity of home ownership. And because they've had to struggle more and are struggling more, they seem to me to have a much more compassionate and caring approach, not only to, to the, uh, you know, their lives ahead, but to the environment. And, mm. and it's, it's, a different style from this generation of politicians. That's how I see it. And, and I think the baton has been passed to them and they're doing things their way. What that, That's a, such an optimistic outlook and it's a beautiful thing to hear actually. But what about the gender component of that? Because certainly a lot of the research that we have done at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at University of Canberra around gender attitudes among Australians, uh, it, it, it's actually not terribly encouraging. We're seeing millennial men, for example, uh, a third of millennial men, demonstrate very old-fashioned views around women and leadership and what's appropriate for women. So th- this, this new wave that you're seeing, is there a gendered component where they've broken down gender stereotypes or uh, is, is it too early to talk about that? Well, we are on our third woman prime minister in New Zealand and so so the expectations that, that women could be prime minister and have been and been successful, I think, you know, it's in, it's in the psyche of New Zealanders. It's not a surprise to have a woman. But I think you're right in that Jacinda has brought something that is quite unique in terms of of the leadership she's shown, publicly shown, and she's had these opportunities to show it, not necessarily ones of her choosing, for Christchurch Massacre, for example. The leadership she showed there led the country in the way New Zealanders responded to that massacre and that tragedy. It also led the way for the rest of the world to to frame what had happened differently. Mm, that's true, and and I haven't I haven't seen a similar survey in New Zealand that would show the same. But I I wonder whether it's because here in Australia you've had Julia uh, for a brief time as as Prime Minister, and it hasn't been the norm, if you like, to have a woman leader. Although you've got some extremely good women leaders and um we have some amazing women and some amazing exactly. women leaders but the gillard period unfortunately was uh well the, probably one of the key legacies of that period was uh extraordinary misogyny and, mm-hmm. and sexism and that's what people remember most and 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 julia gillard's misogyny speech is one of the most powerful i've ever listened to out of any parliament it's a fascinating speech, there's no, no doubt about it. And yet here in Australia, certainly in Canberra in the press gallery, it was perceived differently from the way the rest of the country and the rest of the world saw it. But just coming back to Jacinda, uh, her example and the example she has set, not just for New Zealand, Australia, but around the world is extraordinary. But it makes me nervous. It makes me nervous that because she is considered to be such a goddess of of leadership, really, that the downfall, which perhaps I'm a pessimist, but I believe is inevitable, will be super ugly. 
she would never consider herself to be the goddess of leadership. <laughs> I know. That she, she, I know. She, she has done, what she has done is to be a leader in her own style. She's the genuine person. What you see is what she's like. And, of course, she, she will also face what all politicians face. Um, you know, there are the highs and the lows of politics. And, and, and she's had lows in politics and she's, she's ha- having highs. But she's realistic, as you have to be in politics, that, you know, one, one day they say you, you're the king of the roost and the next day you're the feather duster. And, um, and things can change so quickly in, in politics. And, and I'm pretty sure she knows that one day, um, no matter how long and how good you are, the public finally want to change. And that's when I was saying that's when you weigh up what you've done and what you've achieved and when is your moment that you would walk away from politics. So just before we finish up, and it's been a fascinating discussion, and I just want to come back to the issue of gendered traits around leadership and, and even beyond politics. And Jacinda, of course, being an incredible example. But then if we think about Helen Clark, a very, very different um, female leader as well. In fact, New Zealand women in leadership have all been very different. Do you do you think, though, that it's a matter of a matter of time and that the more women who achieve these positions of power and authority and leadership will mean that we stop obsessing about whether or not leadership has gendered traits? I, I certainly hope so, that it just becomes the norm. We've got a woman prime minister. We've got a, a woman chief justice or a woman governor general. You know, women are holding these these positions and it's not seen to be other than these are comp- competent women who've got these jobs. It's not a gender thing. They're competent people. Um, I suppose we are some way from that. It's particularly in business. I, I, I think we've got in the, the corporate boardroom we've in New Zealand, we've still got a long way to go. But, you know, there's some very competent women, and I've met some of your competent women corporate leaders here who, um, you know, are, are strong and outspoken. The more we see of that the better in that in that particular field. And I think we've got to make some breakthroughs there um, in business. You must have, you must see it in the boardroom that there's just not enough women around those tables. And in this, one of the areas in New Zealand that we've been trying extremely hard in is, is not only in gender, but it's also in, in, in different ethnicities and particularly for Maori in New Zealand. And that's something that I, I am proud of. Maori women leaders, but Maori in general and the place in New Zealand now that we, we've grown up so much in terms of biculturalism before we could reach multiculturalism in New Zealand. Indeed, and Australia has a long way to go in that respect, unfortunately, I'm sad to say. But, Annette, I'm going to have to leave it there, but it's been really fascinating speaking with you, and I thank you so much for taking the time to uh, sit down and have a long yak with me for Broad Talk. Well, thank you, Virginia, but I feel it was a bit boring, really. I mean, it's, um, oh. I'm saying this, I feel like I've been saying these same things for so long that. Um, it, it's new for us, remember, um, and having you here means that for some of us, we're hearing this for the first time. So thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Funny, isn't it? How some people who've lived such big and eventful lives think they're boring. Well, dear listener, if you've stayed with us this far, like me, you know that Dame Annette is anything but boring. In fact, she's utterly endearing. I hope you've enjoyed this chat. And look, I've got more terrific, insightful, personal and some pretty challenging conversations with leaders coming up. So make sure you subscribe to Broad Talk and each of those new episodes will appear magically on Thursdays in your pod feed. You can connect directly with me on Twitter at Virginia underscore House, H-A-U-S-S, or find us on Facebook at Broad Talk, all one word, and join the Broad Talk Roundtable group where you can pull up a seat and check in with questions, comments, views, news, anything you'd like to share. There's always a seat waiting for you at the Broad Talk Roundtable. Until next week, Broadies, happy chatting.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 